So you can turn over, turn over to uh, Ma- uh, Matthew, Romans. <laughs> Getting lost here. Romans chapter two. We're starting Romans chapter two today, and we'll be spending a couple weeks on the uh, subject matter of God's righteous judgment. And I know that uh, we've talked about God's judgment, God's wrath, God's anger. It seems kind of like a depressing (laughs) thing to talk about, but it's something that's in the Word, and it's the next subject matter we come to in chapter 2, and uh, it's, it's really, I pray that as we go through this, that you'll have a better understanding of God's righteous judgment, and that it will give you a better understanding in turn of who God is, and His attribute and His characters, His character, attributes and His character, and uh, hopefully it will encourage you in your walk. In the Lord. So I just want to read our text for us this morning, Romans chapter 2, and I want to read down to verse 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very things, the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on these who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Here in, in uh, chapter 2 of Romans, we see that Paul begins to uh, address the Jews. And a lot of People believe in chapter 1, he was addressing those who are of the Gentile uh, background. And so he listed off a bunch of sins that God's wrath would be poured out against. And it sounds like pretty bad people, which they were. Uh, And then here in chapter 2, he begins to change uh, the direction of his teaching, you might say. Remember, we talked about in Romans chapter 1, sins like idolatry and sexual immorality and homosexuality and a long list of destructive relational sins that God's anger went out against. And I'm sure Paul, being a Jew himself and a former Pharisee, he knew that his fellow Jews were watching this whole dialogue here and and realizing that, yep, you know what, Paul, you're right. Give it to those Gentiles. They deserve it. And uh, those pagan sinners, I mean, they they were totally, I think, on Paul's side at this point. And they would smugly be thinking, thank God that I'm not like those awful Gentile sinners. And we saw in chapter 1 where man actually abandons their God and God abandons their, uh, his men, God abandons man there, to the consequence of their own sin as a result of that. And so you see the wrath of God kind of unfolding there in chapter 1. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, you're probably asking the question, well, what if you're not involved in any of this stuff? What if you're not involved in idolatry or sexual immorality or homosexuality? Or a long list of those things that that disrupt our own relationships with people? What if we're the kind of person that is kind of a good guy? Maybe a moral individual. Maybe you come to church each week. Maybe you work hard to provide for your family. Maybe you love and respect your wife. Maybe you care for your children. And you're thinking, yeah, Paul, give it to these pagans. (laughs) These people that practice these things, I would never do anything like that. What about the moral people? The people who aren't murderers. The people who aren't drug addicts. The people who aren't liars and thieves and fornicators. What about them? The adulterers. 
What about the people that don't practice these things? The people who are basically good, moral folks. They haven't abandoned any sense of their right and wrong. They bring their families up in a good American way. What about the people who don't partake in these things, Paul? Where do they fit in God's judgment? Or do they fit in God's judgment? And I think a lot of people who are moral, basically, there are a lot of people in the world today that are, live by a moral standard that we could look at and say, wow, they're, they're good people. You look at a lot of people from the Mormon faith. They're good family people. They provide for their families. They provide, they're involved in their community and in their church. They just serve a different Christ than we do. <laughs> but they're good moral people. And they would probably agree with what Paul was saying against all these immoral people in chapter 1. This godless, pagan society. And you know what? When you look at the history of the world, from the very beginning, you've always had moral people. You've always had people that kind of, basically, they're, they're on the outside, they're okay. They're basically good people. But I want to tell you this morning that morality doesn't equal salvation. Morality won't get you saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that all fall short, all have sinned. What does that mean? It means all. Somebody asked me one time, well, what about the Pope? Do you think the, the Pope is a sinner? I said, I don't have to think. I know. Based on Scripture. But moral people are not necessarily true believers, true followers of Christ. Even though they want to uphold kind of an external moral virtue. A value system, you might say. They get frustrated because they can't maintain that that system of their own values. They find themselves constantly coming up short. Because they cannot restrain their own sinfulness that lies within. So what do they do? They cover a really dark and sin-filled heart with a cloak. A cloak of light. They pretend to be something they're not. Remember when I was younger and I was living with my sister and brother-in-law. We found this old lion's or uh, bear skin head and everything. And so we thought it'd be funny to to go up in the. I went up in the woods and put this bear skin over me and hid behind a pine tree. And my sister and brother-in-law were walking along the trail. <laughs> Scare my sister, you know. So I came out with this thing on her, and then she took off running. She was, she thought it was a bear. Why? Because I was acting like a bear. I looked like a bear. I had a bear skin on me. That's what these people do. They have really a sin-filled, darkened heart in life, but they put on a cloak of light. They put on something to make them look like something else. And when you come... To the bottom line, basically the whole Christian gospel, the whole Christian faith can only be understood if you understand that you're guilty before God. That's the first step. It doesn't matter whether you're the immoral person of chapter 1 that Paul goes on or the moral person that he begins to talk about in chapter 2. Whether they're Gentile or whether they're Jew, it makes no difference. We're all guilty before a holy God. So in chapter 2, Paul begins to kind of zero in on the, the, the morally correct people. Religiously, he probably had in mind those of the Jewish faith. 
simply because it was those of the Jewish faith that didn't, they tried not to partake in all these outwardly sinful behavior. Whereas the pagan who didn't even know God and didn't care about God, they would go do whatever they want. But the Jew had to kind of bring up a, a, a cloak of righteousness. But it's interesting, he doesn't really name them here in chapter 2. He doesn't name them really until you get all the way down to verse 17. In verse 17, he finally says, but if you call yourself a Jew, <laughs> then he really kind of lowers the boom on them. But he's really, I think he has them in mind. Because up until now, they've been probably applauding Paul. Yeah, go after those Gentiles, Paul. Those of the Jewish faith, us in the Jewish faith, we don't have to worry about this judgment from God for the simple reason that we're God's people. But he doesn't just start off naming them right away. And that's the way it is in the Bible. If you look at the prophet Amos, he, he took the same approach in Amos 1 and 2 where he begins by condemning all the foreign nations around Israel. And just as the Jews started cheering him on and, yeah, go, go get them, Amos. Get, you know, you'd let those pagan nations have it. Then all of a sudden, he moves in on their sins and he turns the light on them. And it's the same thing with Nathan and David, remember? Nathan's describing all this stuff and he says, well, what about you? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. And so Paul, from his own background, knew that he was dealing with not only pagan Gentiles who didn't care about God at all, totally lost, but he was also dealing with a religious element that knew who God was, knew their, thought they had a relationship with God, and really thought that they were righteous in and of themselves. They were self-righteous. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to witness or share Christ with somebody who is self-righteous, I'll take a total pagan over somebody like that any day of the week to share the gospel with. Because usually the total pagan's already caught up in a vice. You know, their marriage is destroyed. They're addicted to some kind of substance, and they're, they're on the street, and they're just down and out. They're at the bottom of the barrel. And so when you say, hey, I can give you some hope, there's forgiveness in Christ, you know, they're interested in that. But when you're dealing with people who are self-righteous, it's, they're very different. it's a very different character. It's a very different sin, and that's what it is, self-righteousness. It is a sin because it's hard to get them to see and condemn themselves because they don't think there's anything wrong with themselves. It keeps people from seeing their need for the gospel. Self-righteousness believes the lie that we can be good enough in and of ourselves somehow to qualify for heaven. Therefore, we don't need a Savior who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. I mean, maybe these people in chapter 1, dude, you understand? I mean, they've been, you know, they're, they're committing adultery and immorality and homosexuality, all these horrible sins. They need a Savior. But I mean, I'm, I'm religious, I go to the synagogue. I practice my faith all the time. I live by a different standard than those people. They need a Savior, but, but not me. Because I'm basically a pretty good person. God wouldn't judge a good guy like me. Would he? Or would he? I'm reminded of the little story with a little 12-year-old. Y'all remember going to the dentist, right? And uh, this little 12-year-old was in the dentist office, and he had to fill out, you know, a little name thing. So his mom let him do it, and he was writing this in. Came down to one of the subjects on the, uh, the paper. It said hobbies. So the little 12-year-old thought, well, you know, I'm going to win the favor of my dentist. Right? No kid likes to go to the dentist, so at least you want the dentist on your side. So he wrote down under hobbies, he wrote, swimming and flossing. <laughs> he wanted his dentist on his side. He wanted his dentist to what? Like him. But that story, as humorous as it may be, it reflects how we all want to portray ourselves, beloved, as something better than we really are. That's just who we are. We want to make a good impression. 
when we do that, a lot of times we forget scriptures like Hebrews 4.13. It says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, God basically knows the very thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He knows what we're going to speak before we even speak it. And someday, we're going to stand before him and give an account of our lives. So we must judge our sins on the kind of the, the, the honest, with an honest assessment. And we want to definitely guard against being self-righteous. So here he begins, and, and I want you to understand that he kind of lays out here all the way down through verse 16 a, a principles of righteous judgment of God. And the first one we want to look at today, and that's knowledge. The six principles are knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motive. But the first one is knowledge. And so Paul, first of all, he wants to acknowledge that there are people in this world who maybe not, do not do things as bad as the people in chapter 1. And so he begins to expose here in chapter 2 what we would call the self-righteous person or the moralist. And um, we need to understand that there's a certain knowledge that we all have received. And when you come to the Gentile, all right, they don't have as much knowledge, obviously, as the Jew. And the problem with the, the, the Jew at this point in time was that they thought of a couple different things. They thought that basically they would be saved through their association with the nation Israel. Just like a lot of them do today. Because of their physical and religious identification with Israel, the Jewish people basically assumed that they were exempt from God's judgment. They were God's chosen people, which they are. They expected to be regarded. They expected to be treated not as individuals, but as a nation. See, we're all in this together. That was their thinking. They thought there was no consequence for their own personal sin, because they believed that somehow there was salvation <clears throat> by being part of the nation of Israel. But they also they also believed that there was salvation by covenant. They also believed in salvation by their covenant with God. Today we would call something like this sacramentalism, which basically means that you have to do something to be saved. Back then they would have said, well, we're circumcised the eighth day. We adhere to such sacraments as this and that. They were in a covenant. And the basic thinking was that, hey, if you do these certain things, that God is looking on you and he's not going to hold your sin in account. And you know what? That's not too far from what people think today, even in the church, even in the Protestant church. In some Protestant churches, you have babies that are baptized as infants. Why are they baptized as infants? Well, it basically, if you ask them, it, it enters them into a covenant, covenant theology. And then when you're 12, you're what? You're confirmed. And see, these sacraments are there to guarantee that that child will have a place in God's kingdom and not be condemned with the world, even as a little infant. I believe God has a special allotment for infants. I think we can see that even in the Old Testament, that there's a certain grace given there. So the Jews believed that by keeping these traditions, their religion, by being sacramentally attached to a covenant with God, they were exempt from his judgment. And there's people like that even 
I would even venture to say in our own church today, there's people that have been baptized, go to church for years, keep all the rules. They think they're moral. They're self-righteous people. They don't think that they'll ever be judged by God. And sometimes they're some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Christ because they think they know it all. They got it all figured out. They know all the Christian terms. They become familiar with the church, how it works, why, what goes on. It's much easier to reach out to someone who's a reprobate, who's never been to church, <laughs> and see them gloriously saved by the gospel of Christ. But here in chapter 2, with, with great clarity, Paul begins to point out that the ethical, the moral person without Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, they will find themselves in the same hell as the pagan idolater. And if you don't think that was news to the Jews of the day, it was. And what his argument is here is if the Gentile is without excuse, then the Jew is even more so without excuse. And so it really comes down to a basic of their knowledge. How has God revealed himself to him? And we've gone over these before, so we don't have to spend a lot of time here. But he starts off there in verse 1. He says, therefore, that ties it back to the idea that even though these people committed all these hideous things, there's no excuse for them before God. He turns his laser on the righteous Jew, self-righteous Jew, and he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Just because you're doing all this religious stuff, you're still without excuse before a holy God. Well, how does God reveal himself? Well, he does it through natural revelation. We've seen this in Scripture. We saw that in verses 19 to 20 of Romans chapter 1. It was clear whether you were Jew or Gentile, you knew the truth through natural revelation. The obvious existence of God, just look around at the creation around you. And what was true of the Gentiles, also true of the Jew. But also, not just natural revelation, but also through conscience. He says in verse 14 here, in in, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For when Gentiles do not have, who do not have the law, right? They don't have the law of God. That was given to the Jews. So the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Kind of sounds confusing. What he's saying is basically the basic moral person who goes out and says, hey, do you want to go to the store and steal something? The basically good moral person would say, no, that's wrong. Well, where do they get that? God has given that revelation in their heart. Even though they may not own a Bible, they still know it's wrong to take somebody else's stuff. God has given that through our conscience. And so what he's saying in verse 14 is the Gentiles, they don't have the law of God, and yet they do what the law requires even though they don't have the law. Why do they do that? So both Jews and Gentiles have this innate knowledge given by God of right and wrong via their conscience. Our little granddaughter, Gabby, she went through a little time where she was getting in trouble a lot for just mouthing off or whatever and crystal would discipline her and uh after the discipline you know through the discipline process she would confess and say yeah that was wrong and i'm sorry she started doing something that was a little odd she started confessing things even though she didn't physically do them yet so she'd run in the kitchen and say Mom, I have a confession to make. And Crystal's like, okay, what'd you do now? Well, I didn't do anything. But when Mason said this, my brother said this to me, I was thinking this. <laughs> and I just want to confess. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of neat to see that kind of a heart. Her conscience was telling her what her heart was telling her to do, even though she was restraining it. She wouldn't physically do it, but she knew in her mind she was thinking of doing something bad. Her mom would say, you can't have any more candy. 
And she'd come back in and say, Mom, I have to apologize. I'm sorry, but I was sitting on the couch and I was just eating candy in my mind the whole time. <laughs> you know, just crazy, right? It was her conscience. We all have that. Well, not only through revelation, natural revelation, not only through conscience, but also knowledge through the law of God. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is interesting. Chapter 3, Romans, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, look at what it says, the Jews were what? Entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God gave them the commandments. God gave them the law. Why did he give them the law? It wasn't so they could take it and hoard it. <laughs> That's what they did. They took it and they, they abused it and they, they changed it and they made all these other laws that don't exist. That's not why God gave it to them. God gave it to them so that they could share it with other people, but they didn't want to do that. So he's saying they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And the Jewish people had the truth of God in written form before their eyes. And what he's saying is, therefore, they're just as inexcusable, if not more so, because they had the revelation of nature, they had the revelation of their own conscience that God put inside them, but they also had the revealed word of God. And they, unfortunately, didn't think that way. They thought because they lived a certain way or they did a certain thing or, or whatever, that they were righteous in and of themselves. In Romans chapter 9, look at verse 4. Romans chapter 9, verse 4, it just kind of highlights this. It says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. This is what they were entrusted with. They didn't do a very good job keeping that trust. They killed the very Savior that God gave them. And so you see here that the knowledge was given through natural revelation. The knowledge was given through their conscience. The knowledge was given to the Jew, especially through the written form of God. Today, probably all of us somewhere in our house or in our, on our person, we have a Bible. We have a written revelation from God. What you do with it, that's between you and God. Some have 10, 15, 20 Bibles and they never read them. They collect dust. You're going to be held account based on how much information has been given to you. And so here he says, therefore, in Romans 2, 1, therefore you have no excuse. Why? Because you've been given all this Revelation. Well, who is he talking to? Oh, man, he says. It's a general, revel general reference to basically anybody who thinks he's exempt from God's judgment. Anybody who is thinking in their mind, well, I haven't done all these bad things that Paul talked about in, in Romans chapter 1, so I guess I'm okay. He's, the, he's who you're talking. He's who God is talking to. Paul says the man of Romans 2 is inexcusable because he had knowledge. He probably had a more complete knowledge. Some of the Jews of Paul's day who would have been exposed to this chapter knew all about Christ. Yet what they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. That put them in the category of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, where it says, Of how much sorer punishment suppose you that he be thought worthy 
who hath trodden under the foot of the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified an unholy thing. There's going to be a special judgment. Now, look at what he says. So this is basically the moralist, the self-righteous person, whoever that may be, Jew or Gentile. Probably pointed to the Jews, but it could apply to either. Therefore, you don't have any excuse because you've been given revelation. Anybody who's moral, oh man. And then he says, every one of you who judges. Every one of you who judges. Well, who is that? Yeah, everybody, right? How many of us go through life and don't make judges about other people? Judgments about other people. We all do that to some degree. The moralist is basically the person who knew God's standard. And we know that he knew it because he's applying it to somebody else. See, if, if you are doing something that you're charging somebody else with and you're doing it yourself, you can't say, oh, I didn't know it was wrong. <laughs> because you're judging that other person on that standard. Anyone who sits in the seat of moral judgment and condemns other for their sin proves that he is inexcusable. It'd be like going to traffic court and standing before a judge and saying, yeah, sorry, I drove 80 miles an hour down Jefferson and, you know, but I didn't know I wasn't, I wasn't allowed. To. Well, he's going to say it doesn't matter, right? There's no excuse. I'm giving you a ticket. Why? Because he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong. It'd be like that judge getting up from his seat, walking outside, getting in his car, and then driving 80 miles an hour down Jefferson and getting pulled over and saying, oh, I didn't know, right? You would say, well, that's, that's not true. You, you, I saw you in court. You just gave this guy a ticket. You know it's wrong. Anyone who sits in the seat of moral judgment and condemns others for their sin proves that he himself is inexcusable. And by the time he gets down to the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 32, look at what he's saying. He's saying, though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, that not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They knew. Even the pagans knew that it was right and wrong what they were doing. And so there's no excuse here. And then you come to the, the condemnation, condemnation here in, in verse 1. Because Paul says to the, the moralists here, he says, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn your, what? Self. You condemn yourself. Look over at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. He's basically using... The Apostle Paul is using the words of Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> you hear this all the time. You hear people say this all the time. Judge not, what? Lest you be judged. You ever confront someone over their sin? Oh, wait a minute. Judge not lest you be judged, brother. I mean, yeah, it does say that. But I think they stopped reading right there. That's all they wanted to do. Just read that little part. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't make judgments. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't evaluate things. That's not what he's saying. Clearly, we're told to do that. Look down at verses 15 and 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Well, what are you doing if you do that? You're making a judgment, right? So... He clearly cannot be saying just don't judge ever anything because he's saying you should examine the fruit of those who claim to speak for God. But in verse 1, Jesus is telling them basically to stop criticizing. Stop condemning people. Stop finding fault with other people. Stop being self-righteous. Stop questioning other people's motives. That was one thing that really helped me in ministry early on, even as a youth pastor. A pastor took me aside one time because I was ticked off some parents and just the way they were dealing with their kids and dealing with me. And just, I was really frustrated. 
And I remember this pastor saying to me, look, they're the parents of this student that's in your youth group. You're basically questioning their motives. You have no right to do that. We have no right to ever question someone's motives. How do we know what motivates somebody? It may look like, oh, they have bad motives, but you can't tell what's in somebody's heart. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, stop finding fault with everybody. Stop thinking yourself to be so self-righteous. Because you can't read what's in people's hearts, so don't question people's motives. Stop pushing your criticism to the point where you're playing God. We need to hear this today. Because a lot of times, even within the church, you know, we, we have people that are saying certain things or doing certain things, and then they criticize somebody else. And, well, they did this. And, well, okay, what did they do? Well, they said this. Okay, well, what they said is not really wrong. Well, but I know they meant it this way. Well, how do you know they meant it this way? You can't possibly know that. Only God can know that. And that makes them accountable only to God. Until that motive equals an outwardly placed action, you have no right to point your finger at that person. They may have the most wickedest heart in the world, but you know what? If somehow they can restrain it and they have wrong motives and they're acting on those wrong motives, but it's never fleshing itself out in in an action that can be pointed out and saying, hey, wait, this is sin. Clearly, look at what they're doing, not what they're thinking, not what they're thinking of doing. You You can't question that. We're not God. In verse 2, he says, well, what judgment do you judge? 7 7-2, Matthew. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Then he goes on, he says what? Why do you see a speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or your sister, for that matter, let me take this speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? (laughs) I mean, get the imagery here. This This literally means what it says. You see somebody that's got a little grain of sand in their eye and maybe their eye is, is watering and you have a, a hunking two-by-four sticking out of your head. How are you ever going to even get close to that person without hitting them with the... You know, it's impossible. I mean, it's kind of a silly illustration. But that's, that's how silly this is before God. It grieves the heart of God when we get to that point to the point where look at verse 5 what's he say he says Matthew 7 5 you hypocrite (laughs) you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye do not give dogs what is holy do not throw your pearls before pigs or swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you I mean, just by understanding what a dog is and what a, what a pig is, you're making a judgment. So he's not saying, do not judge at all. You hear some bylines for some churches today, and, you know, first church of what's happening now, where everyone is accepted. What does that mean? What if God doesn't accept you? You, you just want to accept the people that God doesn't accept? See, we live in a day and an age today where we, we have this love-based mentality and we think that, well, God is a God of love and he would never condemn anyone. He would never be angry. He would never be wrathful. He would never judge someone because he wrote, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. We're getting things confused today. We're getting things mixed up. I even hear parents sometimes talk about 
with their kids and discipline. And, well, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too harsh with them. What are you talking about? Trust me, a little harshness goes a long way. It's good to be a little harsh with your children. It's good to be a little overbearing with your children. I remember as a youth pastor, I used to talk to parents and I said, you know what? Yeah, you just keep at it with your kids. It's, it's like you going down here and finding an empty lot and saying, you know what? I'm just going to let whatever grows grow and I'll come back and hopefully I'll have a garden in 10 years. What's going to grow in that lot if you just let it go? Weeds. Stuff that's not useful. We have to be active in our parenting. We can't just sit back and say, well, I mean, I, I remember as a youth pastor talking to parents sometimes and my heart would break and I'd be like, look, your kids got some issues. You don't maybe not realize this, but I'm trying to talk them through it. And these are teenagers we're dealing with. Well, we don't know what to do. Well, let me ask you something. What does your child listen to? And this was before the time of, you know, iPods and all that. You know, maybe, maybe CDs were out. I don't know. It was usually cassette tapes. You had the Walkman, Sony Walkman, you know, with the cassette tape. What, what are your kids listening to before the Internet, all that? Well, I don't know. Well, why not? Why don't you know? Well, you know, they, they, they just go in the room after dinner, and, you know, I don't see them until the morning. So you don't know what they're listening to on their headphones. Why not? Well, you know, we, we feel little Johnny, that's his room, and, and you know, he, he, he's, he has rights. You know, we can't. What are you talking about? Little Johnny is living in your house. Little Johnny needs some supervision. You need to go into little Johnny's room and listen to some of the crud that he's listening to. And maybe you understand why little Johnny is so messed up. Oh, well, I, we could never do that. Why? Well, what if little Johnny runs away? Then you call the police and you have little Johnny arrested and brought back to your house. And you tell little Johnny, look, little Johnny, if you're going to live here, this is the way it's going to be. I mean, you know, it's not rocket science. But even today we live, even in Christian families, you see where the kids have the parents right around their finger. And it breaks my heart because they don't understand what's going to be the outcome of that. They're literally raising a child of rebellion before their own eyes because they're unwilling to use some judgment, to use some discipline. To use some basic common sense. It's no excuse. And that's what Paul is saying here. We know that the judgment of God, back to Romans 2, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Doesn't mean you shouldn't make a proper assessment of your kid or if somebody teaching theology, or whatever. Make the judgment call. But make it based on what you're seeing, not on what you think you're seeing. And then he talks here about the, the practice, because the judgment of moralists, basically, it results in their own condemnation. That's what he says. If you judge and you do the same things, Wait a minute, there's something wrong here. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What an illusion that is. Look at Matthew chapter 19. I mean, it's almost to the degree of this illusion we find in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, look at verse 20. 
Actually, go all the way back to 16. We'll just read this whole thing real quick. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Wow. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And look at what this guy's response is. Talk about a self-righteous person. The young man said to him, oh, I've kept all those. (laughs) What do I still lack? Done that, been there, done that. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, (laughs) go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And look at verse 22, it's sad. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Talk about an illusion. Oh, I've kept these things all my life. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about a self-righteous person. He's talking about, in our day and age, he's talking about a church person. Somebody who's come to church all their life, and they just think, oh, they're, you know, fine and dandy with God, and, and you know, they punch in every, every Sunday morning, and, and that's basically their Christian life, and they think that somehow that's going to secure them a place with the Lord. All the while, he's claiming that he doesn't do things that the pagans do lifting themselves up. Oh, I don't do this, I don't do that. He claims he doesn't commit those sins. I hate to keep going back to Matthew because we've already been through this, but it's important. Matthew 5, look at what Jesus says in verse 21. He's dealing with the religious elite. He's dealing with the hypocrites. He's dealing with the scribes, the Pharisees here. Verses 21, 22, Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Notice he says you have heard. Who did he hear it from? He heard it from the Pharisees, the people that were entrusted with God's law, remember? Well, what did they do with God's law? Well, they kind of thought it was kind of harsh, so they kind of changed it up a little bit. (laughs) So he said, you've heard this. But Jesus says, I say to you, in verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. Jesus takes his own words and basically dissects their hearts. He says, you know what? You may not have actually murdered somebody, but you know what? In your heart, (laughs) you're hating that person like you wish they were dead. They were able to refrain from actually acting on it because they sought so hard to be self-righteous. But inside, they were murderers. I want you to understand, false religion cannot restrain sin in the heart. False religion cannot restrain sin in the heart. Eventually, it will come out. But you know what you can do? You can mask it with self-righteousness. We do that real well. Same chapter, Matthew 5, verses 27 In 28, Jesus kind of won't get off this subject here. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that every one of you who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. Look down at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, (coughs) let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, 
except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Once again, Jesus looking at the heart, what was going on? They were just saying, well, okay, I divorced you, I divorced you, I divorced you, and you're divorced. That's it. So now I'm free to marry somebody else. That's the law that they kind of came up with. And God's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Look at verse 33. <clears throat> Again, you have heard it said, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. You're not going to lie. Well, what were they doing? They were relying on their, the keenness of the words that they used. Back then, you know, you could have an oath with somebody. And as long as you, you could do that oath without invoking the name of God, it didn't really matter. It's kind of like when kids come up and you ask them a question and they have their fingers crossed or whatever, you know. That's kind of what they, that's what they were doing, literally. You know, they'd swear by heaven. They'd swear by this. They'd swear by that. On my mother's grave. As long as they didn't say, on God's name, I swear, they were off the hook. They could do whatever they want. They didn't believe that they had to fulfill that oath as long as they didn't invoke the literal name of God. It goes all the way down to verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other side also. See, they were using that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, kind of, a, or uh, eye for an eye. They were using that as basically an excuse to get revenge on whatever they wanted. They were establishing a, a, a vengeance as, as man's God-given right. So if your neighbor does <coughs> something... then you can just kind <clears> of <throat> act like you're God and go out and, and deal with it. But that statement was restricted. It was restricted to the courts for the punishment of crime. It wasn't meant <clears throat> for, <clears throat> sorry, for personal vengeance. And so Jesus says, you know what? If somebody slaps you on the face, you don't haul off and belt them. Saying, hey, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No, that's not how it works. He says, no, you turn the cheek. Self-righteous people make two fatal mistakes. They misunderstand the height of God's law. They don't realize how lofty the law of God is. And they misunderstand the depth of their own sin. Two fatal mistakes that they make. And so the logic here of our Lord is clear, it's convincing. Those who condemn others prove that they know the law. That's what Paul is saying. But through that knowledge, they condemn themselves because they themselves do the same things that they're condemning the other people for. Hence the word hypocrite. So in Romans 2... Paul is pointing out clearly here that the person who looks real good on the outside, the moral kind of individual, the self-righteous person, is just as bad as everybody else. He just happens to cover it up a little better. He claims he's moral. He claims he's religious because he's basically good because maybe he goes to synagogue or he goes to church or maybe he's been baptized or somehow he's restraining his flesh from acting out the externals. But he will be judged as a result. That's a very sobering thing. And Paul refers here to the judgment of God. He refers to it in verse 2, verse 3, verse 5 of Romans 2. He says in verse 5 that they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. 
the overall idea here is if you do repent of your self-righteous, you do not repent of your self-righteous hypocrisy. He says clearly, you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. You notice that in chapter 1, he's using the word they. They do this, they do that. When he's describing all these bad things, they, the pagans, they do this, the Gentiles, they do that. They live this way, they live that. And then he begins in chapter 2, he says, therefore you. <laughs> wow. He gets real personal all of a sudden. He begins to address it personally. Sometimes this is where people claim that the, the, the preacher is going from preaching to meddling. Right? All of a sudden it begins to affect you. Oh, wait a minute, brother. You know, now, now you're speaking dear to my heart. See, he knows that it's easy to be blind to this deadly sin of self-righteousness. It's kind of like the drill sergeant. I remember in ROTC, I was just in ROTC, that's as far as I got, and uh, two years in that. And I remember the first time we went, it was with a bunch of college people, it was an elective, and we took it, we thought it'd be fun. And it was, it was really neat, I enjoyed it. But I remember the, the first day, you know, we're putting on these uniforms, trying to figure out how to do this, and we get out there, and we're all lined up, and it just looked like a bunch of goof-ups, you know, we just didn't know what we were doing. And we had this guy come out, and man, he was dead-on serious, this army drill sergeant guy. And, you know, half the guys are laughing and joking around. And I remember this guy, you know, and I mean, I was laughing because it was just, you know, it was just the nature of the thing. I mean, everybody was just kind of casually taking, oh, it's just an elective big deal. And this guy got up in my face. And I mean, I never stood straighter than I could. You know, he got my attention like nobody has ever gotten my attention before. I mean, he, as he's speaking, you know, I could feel the spit hitting my face. And he was yelling at decibels I'd never heard someone yell at before with this voice that I don't know where it came from. And everybody, it was just dead silence. And then he went right down the road and he did that to everybody. Man, after that day, we realized this is serious stuff. This isn't just a goof-off elective. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, we were ready to go to war, you know. This was just, you know, we were just an ROTC. But this guy brought something out of us. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's pointing his finger at him. He's getting in their face. He's saying, hey, I'm talking to you. Listen up. And he makes these points in his indictment. And he says, you know what? You're prone to self-righteously judge others for the very same sins that you commit. And in closing, I just want to spend a couple minutes looking at these definitions of people who are self-righteous. Righteous. What does it mean to be self-righteous? I remember when they had a campaign down in Florida, and in the in, it was a Republican against a, a Republican, and the one guy put out this ad saying that this other guy was not for family values. He'd been married six times and what a horrible person he was or whatever. And they got actually in an interview. And in the interview, the guy that had been married not six times, only five times, he said, how dare you put out such heresy against me? Blah, 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 blah. I'll have you know that I was married only five times, not six. And I'm a family values man. I mean, that's self-righteousness. That's self-righteousness. It's unconscionable. Sometimes you see it in politics, politics very clearly. But a self-righteous hypocrite judges the sins of others while what? Overlooking his own sins. That's why Matthew says, take the log out of your own eye first. It's like the guy who complains that there's, there's just too much sex and violence on my DVD player. Okay, <laughs> A self-righteous hypocrite judges others based on selective standards, not on all of God's word. One of the most helpful chapters for understanding the sin of self-righteousness is Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. You can read that on your own. But it's important to get a good grip of that understand that. 
A self-righteous hypocrite is more concerned about external conformity than with true inner godliness. That's why Jesus says, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He said that to the Pharisees. They were given the law of God, and he's saying, you don't have any. You have lawlessness. Self-righteous hypocrites want to keep up their outward Christian appearance. But they don't judge their own sins on the heart level. They put on the happy Christian face and they go to church. But they'll use abusive speech and other things in the families at home. That's self-righteousness. It needs to be dealt with at the core. A self-righteous hypocrite, fourthly, is not interested in helping others grow in godliness, but only in gaining a following. That's what the Pharisees were. They were self-righteous. That's why in Matthew 23, he said, But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They didn't care about people. They just wanted to gain followers so that they looked good. And then fifthly, a self-righteous hypocrite justifies himself by comparing himself with others or blaming others for his own sins. These affect all of us. We all do this to some degree in our lives. But that doesn't mean it's right. That's not doesn't mean it's acceptable before God. And it, it calls for a believer to come before a holy God and with a heart of repentance. That's not how God wants us to act. That's not how God wants our hearts to be before him. God doesn't grade on a curve, beloved. He's not interested in, you know, what you're doing during the week in your little devotion time or your little prayer time or, or your time in helping the poor or, or ministering to the elderly. He doesn't care about that if your heart is not right. And I think it's about time that God's people stepped in front of the x-ray machine and looked at their own hearts because a lot of times a self-righteous person rather than just admit it yeah i'm not where i need to be and i need to i need to ask god for forgiveness and i need to come before him and repent and i need to see change it takes dependence upon god it's not going to happen automatically it's hard work It takes time and prayer, time and study, His Word, time and fellowship. It amazes me to some degree how Christians can go throughout the week punching a card on Sunday morning and saying they're growing in their faith when that's the only time they darken the day of the church. That just blows my mind. I mean, I would be at a whole different level spiritually downward if if I wasn't at least coming Sundays and Wednesdays and, and participating with other believers during other times of the week, I, I, I wouldn't be able to function. I'd, be, I'd just be gone. And I fail to understand how some Christians think that somehow they can just coast through their weeks. It's such a low priority. And yet... It's so important. It's so important to the heart of God. We need to examine these things. It's very easy to fall into the deadly sin of self-righteousness. We all do it at times. God's solution is to deal with our sins that are on our heart. We need to come before Christ. We need to confess our sins. We need to turn from them knowing that He will forgive us, He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to spend time daily in His Word. 
The Bible says it's like looking in the mirror and applying soap and water to the dirt in your soul. I warn you this morning, beloved, as brothers and sisters in Christ, please do not play games with God. Do not play games with God. His kindness, His grace, don't take advantage of it. The reason that He gives us His grace and His kindness is to lead us to repentance. That's what we'll look at next week. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You that we can glean from it that obviously You don't like self-righteousness. You, you do not like a heart that's built on what we think we are. Lord, you demand us to come before you with an open heart, with clean hands, with a heart that says, yeah, you know what, I'm a mess and I'm willing to admit it. And I need to get before God and confess and, and bow my heart before you and ask you, Make a change in my life. Help me not to just continue on in this religiosity of Christianity week to week, coming to church, putting on the happy face. When my life is a mess, it's a wreck. The first step to fixing it is admitting it. And you admit it to God. Cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer for an unbeliever and a believer. It's not a day that go, I go throughout the week that I don't need to ask God to forgive me for something. None of us have arrived, not a one. We all need to understand that we need to be dependent on God each and every day, each moment, to be filled with His Spirit, to be under the control of His Holy Spirit, to live a way that's honoring Him, not in a way that's self-righteous. Sometimes we're too concerned being embarrassed or other people finding out. or God already knows. Maybe we should try being embarrassed before God once. Maybe that will help us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray if anyone's here this morning who is yet to put their faith, their trust in you, I know that it's only a prayer away. It's only a, a cry away. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to be released from the, the burden of my sin. Help me to trust in Christ. He will answer that prayer this morning. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.